Our story from 2 Kings today, which we just heard, is as one scholar I heard put it, a cray-cray story. It's a cray-cray, a crazy story to try to explain, to try to understand. Yet across the thousands of years, the story of Elijah being lifted to heaven in a whirlwind has made quite an impression. We have many phrases in our culture that come from this story. For example, passing the mantle as a sign of moving transition of leadership. The 1980s movie Chariots of Fire comes from this story. And the famous spiritual, swing low, sweet chariot, come in to carry me home, comes from this scripture. This is a crazy story, a story of strange glory. And it might make us pause. It might make us want to try to explain it, to figure out what actually happened here. But that would miss the power of this moment. The power of this moment lies in the fact that this God can do this thing, this magnificent, unexplainable thing of fire and chariots and horsemen and whirlwinds. This is power and might. This is not a holy deity that you pray to to get on with your day or you appease with gifts and just pray for the health and well-being of the tribe. The, whole, the Hebrew scriptures are saying that this God is mighty and magnificent and will surprise us. This God will surprise us, will stun us. And we should never, ever think that we know what this God is going to do next unless we want to be proven wrong. And this brings us to our gospel passage today, another cray-cray story of glorious strangeness. Before the passage, Jesus is with his disciples. He has been with them for several years. They have journeyed together across many miles. Jesus has developed quite a reputation as a prophetic teacher and healer. Crowds come to him. And while some powerful people back in Jerusalem have started to take notice, for the most part, This Jesus of Nazareth has been able to fly under the radar, preaching and teaching and traveling around the hill countries of Galilee, Samaria, and other places. His disciples, women and men, admire and perhaps revere him. They like learning from him, from this rabbi, this honored teacher. They want to keep following him, to see where he goes next, to watch the crowds flood. At least they thought they wanted to follow him until recently. And recently, in the chapter before what we're about to read in the book of Mark, Jesus has started to change the tone of his teaching. In this chapter, chapter 8, Jesus has started to bring up some uncomfortable topics. He started to talk about suffering and rejection, about being tortured and executed, Jesus has started to talk about his death, about taking up a cross, and about how he expects his disciples to do the same. The disciples aren't quite ready for this. Peter pulls Jesus aside and says some variation of, ooh, don't be so dramatic. Calm down a little bit. And Jesus says those harsh words, get behind me, Satan. The disciples don't really want to hear what Jesus is saying about this. They have been following Jesus for years. They think he's a great teacher. 
They think they know what to expect next. And then this story happens. Let us listen to the word of the Lord from Mark chapter 9. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them to tell no one about what they had seen until after the Son of Man had risen from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The disciples are not expecting this. They're not expecting this vision, this event, this moment of utterly mind-boggling magnificence. They are on a high mountain, just a couple of them separate from the crowds, and they see figures that they somehow know to be Elijah and Moses. They see Jesus transfigured. He becomes blinding light his clothes glowing with a stunning brightness. The disciples see all this and they are terrified. And this is before the loud voice comes out of the giant cloud. This event is nothing like the disciples are expecting. They've spent three years following around this guy that they thought was a marvelous teacher and healer. They care about him. They admire and celebrate him. Peter has even called him the Messiah the chosen one, and perhaps Peter even thought he believed, knew what that meant. But this, this scene is different. This is a moment of pyrotechnics and incredible voices and dramatic commands that cannot be explained away. This is crazy. This is strange. This moment changes everything. Peter, again, as seems to be usual, particularly in the Gospel of Mark, Peter speaks up. He tries to say something. Let's make three dwellings, he declares. Anyone who's been in an incredible moment where your tongue gets tied up in knots probably can sympathize with Peter here. You see something that boggles the mind, that stuns the senses, and you don't know what to say, so you say the first thing that pops out. Let's build some tents, Peter says. Oh, Peter, bless his heart, is always trying to do the right thing. But this is a mountaintop experience. This is a moment that cannot be contained by words or tents or dwellings or by the rational mind. Now there is a before and an after in their life of faith. Before, these people thought they were following a revered teacher, a famous healer, perhaps the chosen one who could draw together crowds and leave them awed and inspired and amazed. But now, 
now this small group of disciples are being told that this is the Son of God, that this is the child of the Lord of heavens and earth, and at the same time, that chosen, precious, beloved child is telling them he's going to suffer and die, he's going to be rejected, abandoned, discarded by the people. What craziness this must have sounded to their ears. After all, messiahs, chosen ones, beloved prophets, these people don't die unseemly, untimely deaths. They are taken up to heaven in whirlwinds. They are led forth by chariots of fire. They are surrounded by crowds of admiring followers, bidding them farewell. They are not tortured, ostracized, executed. Before, the disciples thought they knew what was coming in following Jesus. And now they have no idea what is coming next. We are about to head into the season of Lent. Lent is a six-week season of the church year, as you might know. It begins this Wednesday on Ash Wednesday, and it ends on Easter Sunday. Lent is the time when we reflect on what it means to follow Jesus as he heads toward Jerusalem, towards the cross and the tomb. We will start the season of Lent this Wednesday on Ash Wednesday, as Alec mentioned, with a unique and remarkable worship time where we will mark our foreheads with ash and remember our own death. There'll be a time when we remember that we are mortal and we are from dust, but that God holds us all, no matter what happens. What craziness. Why would we want to do this as a church? Who in their right mind wants to remember death, remember and be reminded that we will die? This is not something we want to think about. We want to be, consider ourselves young forever. There are a thousand products and processes and productive schedules that give you the promise if you work hard enough, you can stay young forever. Death is not something we want to think about. It's not something that the disciples want to think about either. As one pastor pointed out on a podcast that I listened to about the scripture, it says during Lent we have a mountaintop at the beginning of the season here in the transfiguration and at the end with the cross on the hill. Here in this story, on this mountaintop, this is the God that we want. The God of glory, stunning, radiant, lit up like a Las Vegas strip. This is the God we want to celebrate. At the end of Lent, on that hill with the cross, we'll get the God that nobody wants, the dead God, the tortured, executed, nailed to a tree God. God on a cross is not the way things are supposed to go. This is not the way the Messiah is supposed to live. This is not the way that the Messiah is supposed to die. Coming down from the mountain, Jesus again mentions his death, and the disciples are probably confused. After all, perhaps they could have expected if Jesus really wanted to go out with a, with a bang, with a flourish, he would have gone out right then and there. The moment seems right. The light, the high peak, the cloud, the voice. Jesus could be carried off in a whirlwind, and they could all tell the tale and rally the crowds who are still around him. 
There's no need for the messy stuff, the painful stuff, the suffering and dying stuff. If the disciples could have their way, you can imagine they'd say, let's just keep it clean and glorious and beautiful. Keep it inspirational and uplifting. Let's skip the awkward, he was rejected by all of us part. It would have been so much easier for Jesus to end his ministry right there on that mountaintop, ascending into heaven with glorious, glorious accolades. But this is not the God we worship, and this is not the Jesus that we follow. We don't worship a God who stays high above the struggles of the world. We don't worship a God who stays in the place with clouds and light and bright, clean clothes. We worship the God who joins us in all of our humanity, even the messy, dirty, painful, wounded parts. We follow a Jesus who comes down from that mountaintop. We follow a Jesus who comes down from the mountaintop knowing that he's going towards suffering and even death. This week, I've been reading more about the German religious scholar and theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You might know something of him. He wrote many books throughout the 1930s. He was revered as one of the most brilliant minds of his generation. By the age of 25, he had already received a faculty appointment at the University of Berlin. He was invited all over Europe and the United States to lecture and write. You might know that even though Bonhoeffer had the chance to leave, he decided to stay in Germany during the war. He was involved in an assassination attempt against Hitler, was eventually arrested, and then he was imprisoned in a concentration camp before being killed April 8, 1945, just two weeks before his camp was liberated. What is fascinating, what is less talked about, is Bonhoeffer's own journey to this political resistance. He was first and foremost for most of his life a theologian and a scholar who didn't believe in getting involved in the messy political stuff. He did not like Hitler, he wrote against him, but he just wanted to focus on the teachings and preachings of Christ. He thought that church people should just focus on Christ-centeredness. He saw the work of the church as separate from the challenges of the world, but then he came to the United States. He came to the United States in 1930 to study at Union's Theological Seminary in New York City. He came, and while here, he was a student, and he then came back in 1939 as a bit of uh, refuge because he was already at odds with the Nazi regime. While he was here, he started attending Abyssinian Baptist Church, both in the 1930 and 1939. He became a lay leader. This church was a black Baptist church located in Harlem. He went with a friend of his, Franklin Fisher. And while he attended this church, slowly, the preaching and the teaching started to make him shift how he understood Christ and how Christ related to the world. In Abyssinian Baptist, Bonhoeffer heard preaching that in his mind actually took Jesus the Christ seriously. He found that as church members were forced to confront racism just every day in their normal lives, Christ actually meant something 
to them. Their faith counted for something. Their discipleship wasn't cheap. At the same time, interestingly, Bonhoeffer was not impressed with the preaching he heard in the liberal white churches. He felt like nobody cared who Jesus the Christ actually was today to them in their own lives. He found with no mention of segregation or racism from the pulpit that people were just allowed to live their faith in these neat, nice, inspirational bubbles. He felt like white people showed up to church to feel good and then went on with their life. It was actually watching this happen in 1930s in the United States that convicted Bonhoeffer that the same thing was happening in Germany, and he had to do something about it. German Christians were choosing to keep things nice and neat, pretty, inspirational, uplifting. And that meant they had to close their eyes to what was happening to the marginalized in their midst, the Jews, the migrants, the socialists, and others. Bonhoeffer's time in the United States made him realize that if Christianity was going to matter, if being a Christian was going to mean something in the world, it meant that you couldn't separate the gospel of the church from the struggles of the world. You couldn't keep the uplifting mountaintop experiences separate from the messiness, the pain, the turmoil of life. One might expect Bonhoeffer to just have stayed reading and writing in his scholarly study to continue to be safe and able to continue his work even while Germany was at war. But Bonhoeffer realized while here that the Christ of glory on the mountaintop is the Christ who chooses to come back down, to enter the persecution and pain of the world. It made him realize that he had to go back to his beloved Germany. If he wanted Germany to have any hope of healing or rebuilding, he had to be there fighting against what he saw as the infection of hatred and racism. His time in Harlem made Bonhoeffer realize he couldn't stay up in his ivory tower, preaching and teaching about Christ high above the struggles of the world. And he wrote this, Much will be decided today whether we Christians have enough strength to bear witness to the world that we are no dreamers with our heads in the clouds, that we do not let things come and go as they are, that our faith really is not an opium which leaves us content in the middle of an unjust world, but precisely because we look to what is above, we protest all the more stubbornly and deliberately on this earth. So Bonhoeffer decided to return to his homeland. He decided to descend from his ivory tower. He decided to enter the fray and fight against Hitler back in Germany. And so in 1939, he boarded one of the last ships heading back to Germany. He descended the mountain. He got to work. And a few years later, he was executed at the age of 39. Friends, we follow a Jesus who comes down off the mountain. A Jesus who shows us what it's like to cross not just the hills, but the valleys. We follow a Jesus who joins us on the journey, wherever it might lead. 
Each of us have been through our own mountaintop experiences as well as our own pits of despair, our own valleys of turmoil and tumult. The gift of the Christ who comes down off the mountain is to know there is no place we can go where Christ does not go as well. So I wonder where we are being called to follow Jesus. I wonder where we are being called away from the moments that are just clean and bright and beautiful and inspiring and being called to engage the places that are tough and messy and painful. Our God will surprise us. Our God will stun us because Jesus is coming down from the mountain. He does not stay up there. He is on the move. And the question is, do we choose to follow? Let us pray. Holy One, you are beside us in every moment, on the mountaintop and down, down, down into the valley. You give us your whole life. And in response, we strive to give you back our whole lives. Make us more faithful disciples today. In your holy name we pray. Amen.